Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 81 of Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything, we mean simply everything, even the most unexpected of subjects, has a history, like pockets, relics and flatulence. Aunts, uncles, sons, daughters, grandparents, kin of all sorts. Ah, that's where we're going to go after this one. Ah, it is. We will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of milk, this came to me in a flash uh, just a minute ago, is in fact all about racism. It's about boxes and apparently it's about security. Yeah, because you found a milk thermometer in a historic box a, in Powderham Castle, a didn't you? A floating milk thermometer Whatever that is. in a historic box in Powderham Castle and... It's all about breastfeeding mm. and imbibing the characteristics of uh, the, the the person whose milk you are imbibing. Uh, so hence the fear of foreign wet nurses. But you will have to wait for another mm. day to listen to that. Um, or the history of coffee. Who knew that the history of coffee was about gossip and news, politics, addiction and pleasure. Oh, and so we're told cancer which is also the history of toast and roast potatoes. <laughs> it's also to do with milk as well, obviously. Yes. I can't, wait, I can't wait to do those. I've got to think of something sensible to do. say about milk. I'm already panicking. No, no, lots on milk. Lots on milk. The man milk of sitting, human kindness. The, the milk of human kindness. Yeah. Let me introduce you. Okay. The man sitting opposite me is the Marconi of long-distance historical communication. It's <laughs> Professor James Daybell. You are mining a theme. I am my inventor. I'm particularly proud of that one. Uh, hello, Sam. That's that's very imaginative and and touching. Um, and the man sitting opposite me is the abbot of historical action. It is the truly wonderful, famous historical adventurer, Doctor Sam Willis. Right. So each week we uh, come up with a theme. We discuss. Sometimes James thinks of them. Sometimes I think of them. This one, I rather put my foot down because um, I am away in China a lot filming for my new series for National Geographic. And something struck me and I said, Daybell, I sent you a text. I said, Daybell, we must do motherhood. We must do the history of the mother. And I unfortunately, I, I walked into the Daybell trap because yes. you know an enormous amount about motherhood. So, Well, well, <laughs> I do. So you should all be reading uh, Women's History Review uh, 2015, uh, Social Negotiations in Correspondence Ooh. Between Mothers and Daughters in Tudor and Early Stuart England. Should you be suffering uh, Can we give that a better title? Should you be what unable... It, what was this? I, I'm useless at... I'm <laughs> No, 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 no. So you're only going to letters Mickey, between Mickey, mums and You're daughters. only going to Mickey take. I won't Mickey take. Um, it, should you be finding it hard to sleep 
uh, of an evening, of a night. Um, I heartily recommend this. It's brilliant, well written. Um, it's it's fascinating. So that is an article written this by you. An article and written about... by me about. So it's about the relationship between mothers and daughters in Tudor, um, in Tudor, Tudor and Stuart England, as evidence as evidenced by correspondence. Cool. Um, so it has a huge survey of the field and the literature, and then it uses. Uh, letters between mothers and daughters to examine that particular relationship within a uh, a historical period um, and look at the role of the... I suppose it's the role of of the mother, the kind of relationship mothers have with their daughters, you know, all of that kind of thing. And I will will return to that. I think the... You know, one of the things that I think is really interesting is to... is how do you unlock this sort of concept of the mother across time. Yeah. Is there is it something that is there something that is sort of biologically um con- continual in being a mother or is that something that is, that is sort of culturally shifted across time? It can be approached from a historical point of view. Psychologists get, you know, super super excited about this, the mother, you know, the Oedipus complex, the male, the boy's son's relationship with a mother. Um, there's, I was googling the other day uh, on, well, searching through Amazon for sort of um, images of, of front covers of books about motherhood, and the number of books about the complexity of relationships between mothers and daughters. This kind of very sort of negative, sort of conflict-ridden relationship is is quite extraordinary. Mm. I remember a fairly eminent history professor who I will not name, we were talking about uh, family. I'd gone to give a paper and we were talking about family. And I was sort of saying, oh, I've got young, young daughters. And he said, you know, he had he had teenage daughters. And we were sort of, you know, reminiscing about how lovely they were. Um, and the thing he said was that um, he got on really well with his daughters, his teenage daughters, but his wife was having all sorts of tr- trouble with them. And, you know, there is, there is acute conflict often between mothers and daughters. And what's interesting is why, in a historical sense, trying to explain why that happened. Yeah. Um, structurally, why that happened. And that's something that this article that I wrote tries to do. You know, because if you think about the role of a mother, the mother has a, a very important role in upbringing. So you bring up a child or you educate a child in a particular way to behave in a particular way. And that in itself sows the seeds of conflict later on, ah. because you are chal- you're constantly challenging. So there are levels of history. Their, there are level, levels of history. So so this is constantly sort of challenging uh, your daughter's you know sense of herself. Um, so you will immediately come into into conflict with a with personality, and you pop into that other kind of structural things about about marriage and marriage arrangement and domestic roles and education systems and suddenly you see this relationship between two people in a much broader context also within a context of a family so i mean that's it's amazing anyway. it seems to me like a real key into well a, a very sort of effective tool of public history yes because i always think that when you're trying to get people interested in history, starting off with something they know is always a really a good way of doing it. And one of the things that I think are most acutely felt by people is a human relationship with with a sibling, with a parent, yep. whatever. Yep. Um, but that the mother son mother daughter relationships obviously very powerful. And then you can yep. demonstrate how that might have been the same in the past, how it might have been different in the past, yep. and all of the yep. different cultural factors affecting how relationships pan yep. out. Yeah. I mean, think about think about the way in which 
we and think about this also across life cycle certain cultures the the mother uh, would remain a dominant figure within the household would turn into a grandmother and would be in an extended family living in the same house yeah you know, whereas we in modern day western cultures um people would be much more likely to live separate from their mothers and so the relationship there would be very different so grandmothers aren't normally resident within the 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 household of a nuclear of a nuclear family so structurally that that's very different yeah um also you think about it in very sort of commonsensical terms and everyone assumes that the mother and motherhood has particular sort of loving caring nurturing characteristics that the mother is a very positive figure and absolutely yes my mother is glorious and wonderful and blah 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 nonetheless hello mum hello mum hello mum love you mum um daybells and willis's mum should meet exactly they should they should meet i think they'd get on Hmm. um i've never met your mother uh you've never met my my mother gets on well with everyone uh she was a primary teacher uh so you know very nurturing uh soul tremendous woman However, um, there are, you know, there are often sort of seeds of conflict laid into all interpersonal relationships. What I found interesting there, we were talking about the structure of who lives with who, right? What's expected yes. within a family, whether you live with the mother. And this is what got me into the, in the whole, in the first place. Yes. So last week, I was somewhere called Banpo. Have you heard of Banpo? I have now. Bampo is right. It's just outside Xi'an, which is one of the ancient capitals of China, um, just off the Yellow River Valley. It's in like the heartland of ancient China. And uh, Banpo is an archaeological site and it's about 6,000 years old. Yeah. It's staggeringly old. They discovered the Banpo historical site when they were doing some excavation and rather sort of typical the way that Chinese discover their archaeology during construction. Um, and they were, they were building some kind of massive tower block and they found this site, which was, which was ancient. Anyway, I was looking at some of the relics and I particularly looked at this one. Ah, Can you so describe this that? This is a sculpture of a head with sort of eyes, nose, mouth, uh, some sort of indentations for hair that I can see ears yep. and a sort of um, an elongated swollen neck, swollen neck body and then a big a big body yeah a so big... is that a sort of maternity there you go there's another image. another oh it's tiny it. it's tiny it's in your hand yeah it's like a little sort of um, it's a jug porcelain weeble it's a jug it looks like a porcelain weeble yes. um, so you fill it a up at the larger. back you fill it up if you imagine having a hole at the top of your spine Ooh, you fill lovely. it up there and all of the water sits into the swollen tummy and then you pour it and it comes out of the eyes and mouth. Hmm. It's an extraordinary thing. And you're wearing white gloves. Um, I am wearing white gloves to, to hold that uh, particular relic. It was um, stunning. Uh, one, of, one of the most beautiful so archaeological about... objects. Well, no. Right. No. There's another link. So there, there is, this is part of it, okay? Um, this site in China has become famous, as the Chinese would have us believe, as a location for a matriarchal society. Um, we love a matriarchal we society. We love a matriarchal society. Yes. So um, just very briefly, that is a society in which women held some measure of power. Yes. Uh, more so than a patriarchal society where the men yes. hold the power. Yes. Now, what's really interesting about this is that the idea that the idea that an ancient past consisted of certain societies where matriarchy was common and prevalent is actually um, an idea that was first suggested by Engels. It's a communist theory for the development of modern society and the necessity for revolution. And it's all to do with property. It's immensely complicated. But it's why the Chinese 
are really interested in it. So if you go to the Banpo Museum, you are told how this was a matriarchal society. It was a kind of form, sort of, it was a it was a society in which it was like proto-communism. Everything was shared. There was no ownership of material. So the idea of patriarchy, of everything going through a man's line um, and uh, from a man to his sons and so on, didn't exist. Now, Engels, who was also writing, was based on Marxist theory, he believed that this there was this kind of utopia society based around matriarchy, which happened before men started taking control and then owning property, which then had to pass down to their sons. And that ownership of property then yep. leads to capitalism, and then you need to have a revolution. So the entire theory of communism is built around the need to have a matriarchal society at the beginning of it. Okay. So if you go to the Bampo Historical Museum, because mm. it, it, it makes sense for the Chinese and they, they need to... to it basically helps them establish their authority, the party's authority in China, by saying this is a matriarchal society. The way that it's interpreted is purely along these lines. Right. Even though the historical and archaeological evidence, or the archaeological evidence, doesn't necessarily support it. So um, Bampo was discovered in the 1950s when this communist idea of uh, matriarchy was most prevalent in archaeology. But right. now it's been rewritten by Western archaeologists primarily and some Chinese archaeologists to say, look, there's actually no evidence at all that women were in charge here, that it was a matriarchy, that resources were, were shared. So, But is the idea that <coughs> is the idea behind a matriarchy then that it's a much fairer society, that it's something to do with, with the figure of the mother? Yep. Fairer, a, more peaceful, yep, yep. less violent, um, yes. and, and just generally better um but yes. it, and what what i what really struck me about it was the way that all of the interpretive boards in the museum were this is the, one of the early matriarchal societies early neolithic matriarchal societies of china everyone lived in this kind of proto communist society where everything was lovely and it was kind of like ut utopia and there was nothing anywhere to suggest that the whole thing was essentially made up because it suited their theory of of the way that societies develop. And I was fascinated by that. And so when I was given this relic, when I started yes. off with, then the, 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 the curator was like, this is clearly a pregnant woman. Yes. I was like, it doesn't look it. It might be, but it might not be. How do you know that? Um, and then I said, you know, you start asking them questions. How do you actually know that this was a, was, was a matriarchal society? And they don't. Mm. But it just it it feeds into this this need to understand the world in that way. So that's what got me interested in mothers and the structure of societies, whether it was a woman in charge of the society, whether yeah, yeah. motherhood happened, and it was all to do with passing it down through the mother's line, not the father's, and sharing property. Extraordinary. But very, I had I very extraordinary. I had no idea. Very extraordinary. Yeah. So for me, motherhood is all about medals. Mm. Um, the type you pin on your and your or a type that you wear around your around your neck. An it's award, and it's an award, and it's connected to Nazi Germany. Huh. So I remember back in the back in the day when I was doing A levels many many years ago, and reading all sorts of things about uh, the family and, and and society, and particularly about Hitler's plans for the Aryan race and the way in which the figure of the mother became incredibly important for breeding the new race, ah. the, the sort of the Aryan race. So women were treated almost as these exalted citizens and encouraged to have as many children as possible. 
And within a within a society like that, within a system like that, the mother is often the key linchpin for the promotion of particular ideas because she is important for upbringing. So a lot of the ideas, the way in which a child is brought up is sort of transmitted through the mother. So what you do, you lift the mother up in in a particular sort of exalted way, pop her on a plinth and feed her all sorts of indoctrination to bring up a good Nazi uh, family. And there were a there was a cross cross of honour of the German mother wow. uh, that was awarded to mothers who had a number of children. So a bronze cross for four children, mm-hmm. a silver cross for six children, and a gold cross for eight children and above. And it's not just in Nazi Germany. This also happened. This is amazing. This also no happened in Russia, uh, where they have the order of maternal glory. Uh, which Stalin brought in in on the 8th of July, 1944. And again, it's about a state trying to you know, socially engineer the nation. It also happened in France uh, in, I think, the, the sort of 1920s, uh, the Médaille de la Famille Française, which is a similar sort of idea. Um, back to Nazi Germany, this sort of cult of, of motherhood, there were millions of women who received such awards, such awards, such medals. And you think about the impact that this then has on the nation. Have we got, what's the, if you are, we know, sorry, do do we know historical sources? We've got kind of lists of them or photographs of them. We've got photographs of them. We've got got examples of this. We've also, which is what I'm going to come on to, got letters from women who did not receive them. Hmm. So behind this is the idea that basically if you are involved in a or about to go into a major land war in, in, in Europe, you want the next generation of soldiers and functionaries to sort of be bred and controlled in this particular way. That's the sort of rationale behind all this. Um, you give them these medals. And as I said, there are these letters that survive from women who did not fit this model of uh, the ideal okay. Aryan. And what, what's, I mean, I think what's interesting in this, there's always a question about with any kind of social engineering, whether you think about, you know, medieval or early modern or 18th century uh, gender codes that ask women to behave in a particular way and shape them. One can look at these kinds of codes and think that they are pretty draconian, they're very patriarchal, and how can women possibly have sort of, you know, have obeyed in this kind of way, behaved in this kind of way, and shaped them? And they are a sort of very, ideologically, they're a very stifling form of tyranny. Yeah. Because, you know, while you exalt the mother figure, it, it's something that is, it, that is very limiting, very constraining. You, you put somebody in a very close sort of domestic sphere. Um, but what is interesting is the way, the degree to which women internalise these. And for some of these German women, they were just gutted that they didn't receive these awards. And we have a, a series of, of these letters. Um, a woman wrote in May 1941, Dear Gauleiter Kaufmann, have I been forgotten? I have had eight children and am pregnant again. I have not received my golden cross. My mother-in-law says this is a great shame, and my husband was violent towards me today because of this. Please help. Another wrote, um, we're really not criminals, wrote a mother of 11 to a Gauleiter in Saxony. Another read, am I and my children not as good as others? A 60-year-old mother of 20 
penned, I have already applied twice for the cross and until today have not received a reply. You know, I want this. This is my desire. Yeah. I mean, what 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 is fascinating about this is the way in which the tentacles of the Nazi state can reach out and indoctrinate people, buy them into this this system. And it's it's the sort of fusion of it's the fusion of the sort of study of of Nazi society um, ideas and sort of social social teachings and social control. Anyway, there we are. It's all about medals. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Amazing. It just struck me as well that we um when we were thinking about doing our unexpected history of the Tudors book, yes. we were doing a chapter which uh it was on the face, face or faces, oh. wasn't it? And we did something on portraits of oh, portraits of pregnant women. Pregnant yes. women, portraits, mothers. Yeah. I'm looking at one here which is the portrait of Catherine Knowles. They are 1524 to January 1569. And it's one of these um, extraordinary images where she is clearly pregnant. She's wearing a magnificent coat um, embroidered with, with, with gold thread, it look like, looks like, and then, a, and then a belt which sits sort of perfectly on, on the top of her bump next to a little dog. Karen Hearn, who was, I don't know where she is now, but was curator at the Tate, has done a lot of work on on. These on that particular image and also oh, yeah. other pregnancy portraits. I thought that was, you know, maybe a sort of an individual example, but it turns out that there are actually quite a few yeah. of these. So she was pregnant at least six times in eight years between 1542 and 1550. And it makes sense because it's all to do with blood bloodline. Yep. It's it's the yep. promise of, of the Knowles's carrying yep. on, isn't it? Yep. It's a particularly proud moment to I mean, be captured. If you look at the experience of women pre-contraception, mm. one of the biological constants of a woman's life is that she would be regularly pregnant so you have large families you know you have sex and you know that is an important part of a sustaining a relationship the biological impact of that is that you are regularly pregnant a lot of the women that I study and I've been a historian of gender for I mean across my career and one of the one of the things that I never really get over is the women that I write about, a lot of their adult life has been spent either pregnant yeah. and the impact that that has, or looking after lots of children that constantly around. And, and it's sometimes very difficult when I used to work on politics and you look at some of the women who are very active in Elizabeth's court and either they are active because they are unable to have children and that they're very, you know, that gives them some kind of degree of independence. But nonetheless, because socially 
it's so important for women of that kind of aristocratic background to have children what that does to a to a woman is really is really difficult or they are women who have who are at court but have phenomenally large families okay of course they're armed with sort of groups of servants who look who look after them but nonetheless there is that kind of biological kind of constant women are very physically put into that role of being a mother i mean i've studied i've studied all sorts of examples of this and there, there are all sorts of sources that one might use. We talked earlier on about correspondence, and that's a great resource. There are manuals for uh, mothers, how to sort of bring, how, to be a mother. How, how to be a mother, how to bring up children. And that's something that you can map across time. You can have a look at, again, you can have a look at things like household accounts. There are manuals to be a midwife as well. We've looked at one Mid, of the... Midwife, Jane Sharp's, the yeah, mid, yeah. midwife's manual. And so we can think about the, you can think about the, the role of a mother from a biological perspective and you can think about that in terms of childbirth conception the childbed giving birth uh, and then and then across this we've looked at we've done an episode on childhood and you can look at the mother across the sort of life cycle of the of the the children and the yeah. different roles that and that, that early relationship plays. is interesting here's a quote from queen victoria um on an infant you know a newborn baby <laughs> I like them better than I did if they are nice and pretty. Abstractedly, I have no tender for them till they have become a little human. An ugly baby is a very nasty object, and the prettiest is frightful when undressed. Until about four months. In short, as long as they have their big body and little limbs and that terrible frog-like action. <laughs> I mean, the thing, the thing also... Mother is, of nine children. If you, <laughs> but if you, think about the, if you think about motherhood today, you know, mothers are very constant around around a child we no longer have wet nurses and you know nursery maids and a whole sort of series of, of staff who will you know look after and and basically become barriers between the mother one of the things that bonds mothers and children is is breastfeeding and it's that kind of close contact it's skin to skin it's and that i think that is so important in forming that kind of bond if you look in other cultures and societies where wet nurses are used, that doesn't take place. And whether with Victoria, with with a, with a monarch, immediately there are cultural intrusions into that. Her children would be taken away from her. She has a very public role. There'd be an army of governesses, nurses, etc., that would remove children. Culturally, within Victorian society, the attitude towards children is very different. So the role of the mother and the mother's relationship is very different from today. Yeah. There are some amazing sort of little little case studies. The Pastons, the Paston family. We've oh, talked yeah. about the Paston letters in the past. The uh, Wars of the Roses. Wars of the Roses. Oh, mate, yeah. Wars of the Roses. Um, and if you are interested, well in this, known for writing well, just well, huge huge amounts well, of material. Well known, their, their correspondence survives. Yeah, and you can get it in little edited, modernised volumes, and you can also get it in great scholarly. Uh, sort of original spelling um, volumes. But there's some beautiful stories that go through that. One of the sort of big themes is about conflict between mothers. So this is to return to what I was talking about at the outset, this conflict between mothers and daughters. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is around marriage because marriage was so central to family success and basically placing a daughter in a in a good match was advantageous both to her 
but also to the family that she was leaving. And then there's an example of Agnes Paston, who's the sort of matriarch of the family, falling out with her daughter Elizabeth, who she just is finding great difficult to marry off. And somebody writes to Elizabeth Paston's brother, urging him to find a suitor for his sister because the mother is just being awful to her. And there's a description here. Because she, Elizabeth, cannot speak to anyone whosoever may visit, nor see or speak to my servant, nor servants of her mother, unless she is deceptive about her intentions. And since Easter, she has for the most part been beaten once or twice a week, and sometimes twice in one day, and her head has been broken in two or three places. Wow. History is full of mothers who have been physically violent yeah. to their daughters. Gosh. It's a lot, you know, a lot of um, emotions running high, basically, with this, yes. this whole history of motherhood. Who, yes. Who knew? Um, there's another letter here from Queen Victoria, um, and she's writing to one of her daughters, telling her to tell another of her daughters, Alice, how unpleasant um, giving birth and becoming a mother would be. Let me caution, dear child, again, to say as little as you can on these subjects, meaning pregnancy, yeah. before Alice, who has already heard much more than you ever did, for she has the greatest horror of having children and would rather have none. Just as when I was a girl when I first married, so I am very anxious she should know as little about the inevitable miseries as possible. So don't forget, dear. <laughs> passing on a sort of maternal advice. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things that if you have a look through correspondence and the kinds of records that survive that speak about motherhood, one of the key roles that you find mothers doing is giving advice, passing on information and mm. wisdom like that. When we looked at recipes, we looked at the transmission of recipes and the transmission of know-how. That's and true. We have one my wife was passed down from was her passed mom, down, yeah. yeah. But also the way in which certain kinds of information about the family, uh, information about how to bring up a house. All of that is taught through a mode of transmission that comes from mothers to daughters. I feel that we've been going, we've been fairly negative about the role of the mother in historical time and the way we've talked about sort of what you'd see as bad mothers, violent mothers. We've talked about conflict. There's one example that I want to share with you. Uh, one of my favourite historical figures a woman called Anne Clifford, the diarist, mm -hmm. uh, who's the daughter of the Earl of Cumberland and her mother, uh, Margaret Clifford. And she is basically written out of the will of her father, doesn't inherit the family estate and goes on for the rest of her life trying to sort of claw it all back. But she has an immensely close relationship, not only with her own mother, but also with her own daughters. Yep. And one of the things that I'm always fascinated about in the work that I do is kind of uncovering those kind of detailed emotional relationships between characters. One of the interesting questions is, to what extent were mothers interested in their children in the 16th and 17th century? What roles did they play? What kind of in, you know interest did they have in it? And she's left several diaries, and we have some snippets from uh, a diary written between 1616 and 1619, which talk about her daughter Margaret, who was born on the 2nd of July, 1614. And what you see is a kind of, this is a mother who, yes, an aristocratic mother, there would have been servants and wet nurses and governesses and blah, 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 blah. But she nonetheless 
is deeply invested in her daughter. When her daughter's ill, she has her into her own bed. So you can actually get, you know, right into the sort of minutiae of her of her life. Um, and I'll just read you some extracts here. About five o'clock in the evening, my lord, in other words, her husband and I and the child, went in the great coach to Northampton House, where my lord treasurer and all the company commended her. And she went down into my lady Waldham's chamber, where my cousin Clifford saw her and kissed her. But I stayed with my lady Suffolk. So even there, you've got her going off on a what is a sort of formal visit. The daughter, the young daughter, is accompanying her. Upon the 22nd, the child had her sixth fit of the ague in the morning. So she's basically fitting from from a high temperature. Mr. Smith went up in the coach to London to my lord, to whom I wrote a letter to let him know in what case the child was. The same day my lord came down. And then a few days later, the same day the child put on her red baize coats. Upon the 25th, I spent most of my time in working and in going up and down to see my child. About five or six o'clock, the fit took her, which lasted six or seven or even seven hours. Upon the 4th, should have been the child's fit, but she missed it. Upon the 6th, the child had a grudging of her egg again at night. Upon the twelfth, the child had a better fit of her egg again, insomuch I was fearful of her that I could hardly sleep all night, so I beseeched God Almighty to be merciful to me and spare her life. So you've got, you know, you've got intimate detail. It goes on to talk about how later on her strings were cut. So you've got this idea Mm. of reins being used and, and the sort of bringing up of a daughter. And I think it is entirely possible to reconstruct a mother's role in the upbringing of children you know and we're talking here about that's very easy to sort of think about in the modern day when there's so many manuals around and you know and practices all around but in periods where and this is constantly the case in periods where source material is so limited such things that we think of in a sort of commonsensical way are so incredibly difficult to recreate yeah I suppose the the other side of that is where where source material is is so prevalent, where there's so much. Yes, of yes. One one particular aspect of that we haven't got any time to go through it, but there is an amazing collection of letters written by child evacuees during the Second World War Ooh, back to their parents, oh and they're my brilliant. Gosh. They're absolutely brilliant. So you you get to know about what it was like as a child to then experience the countryside for the first time, different food, different people, changing relationships, having to maybe bond with someone who's like a surrogate mother because your mum's being yep. bombed in London. Yep. They're an absolute treasure trove for what's going on in the in the and missing in, your in mother the 40s. and you straight know, up missing your mother yep. and, and yep. also the mothers missing the kids. But um, if you if you're interested in the history of childhood and um, you need something accessible but heartwarming and touching and also full of details. Look, I know there's a um, um, BBC did an archive of World War Two memories, but there are lots of different places where you can find letters written by child evacuees, and um, they they will make you they will make you feel better. <laughs> Brilliant. What more could we say? And hi, Mum, again. Hi, Mum. How are you doing? I hope you're listening. Thank you, everyone, apart from our mums. Is it just our mums who listen to this podcast? I it think it's just be. our mums, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, they won't be listening to this. All right, and the other half million of you. Thank you very much. Um, please leave a review on iTunes. Get in touch with us. Tell us your stories. Um, send us some photos. Send us some pictures so we can talk about some letters. I want to see some Check letters. out our website. Yes, historiesoftheunexpected.com. We've got a book coming soon. We've got some live dates coming soon. It's all getting quite exciting, isn't it's it? It's getting very exciting. Yeah. Uh, and you can follow us on Twitter. You can follow Sam at Dr. Sam Willis. You can follow me at James Daybell. You can follow Histories of the Unexpected Podcast on at Unexpected Pod. We are 
tremendously proud to be part of the excellent History Hit Network, home of Dan Snow's History Hit and other fantastic shows. That's it then, guys. Thanks a lot for listening. Bye. Bye. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. AdWanted UK is the provider of single-source media data for agencies, media owners, brands and academic institutions. And thanks to our rebranded news offering, called The Media Leader, we can also lead the way in championing excellence and inclusion in the media industry. To find out more, simply visit the-media-leader.com to subscribe to our daily bulletins. The Media Leader from AdWanted UK.